I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. Esperanza Spaulding has dazzled audiences with her virtuosic bass playing, and on her latest album, she's exploding all genre boundaries. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. The multi-talented Esperanza Spaulding joins us in the studio. Plus, we remember David Bowie a year after his death. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and today we welcome Esperanza Spaulding to the show. What a story, Greg. Uh, This young woman was a child prodigy on the double bass, went to the prestigious Berklee College of Music, uh, not only graduated from there, but became an instructor. Debut album, 2006, began playing with heavyweights like Wayne Shorter, Prince, Herbie Hancock, won the Best New Artist Grammy in 2011, primarily known as a jazz musician, but she's always worked across genre boundaries. And on her latest album, Emily's D Plus Evolution, there is funk, there is jazz, there is classical, there is progressive rock. She absolutely has a long list of talents, Jim. I mean, this new album is so theatrical. It it crosses so many genre boundaries, uh, artistic boundaries, because it seeps into theater and dance, and you could really see that come to the fore in her stage show. I mean, she's a multi-instrumentalist, a multilingual vocalist, a band leader, a librettist, a songwriter, <laughs> a soloist. She's a teacher. She, it, the list goes on and on. So I asked her how she identifies herself and what she likes to do the most. What I like to do most is apparently think of something that I don't know how to do yet and then throw all the ingredients that I can think of up under the can- canvas and see what sticks mm. and figure out how to make it work. Um, sometimes that involves bass playing, sometimes that involves singing, sometimes that involves like theater. I, I like to experiment and create things, create things that first were up here in the old imaginative mind, and I really like to bring things to life. Well, you covered all of that ground in the, the new album, Emily's D Plus Evolution, not only in the, in the album itself, but in the performances that have set it up, uh, everything that I've seen, there's a theatrical element to it. There's dancing as well as all this other stuff. <laughs> so you're you getting in, it dancing. You're getting Aww. into all these, all these other areas as well. There's a character involved uh, that you're seeing the world through. Mm. Uh, Emily, mm. explain how you arrived at the point where you created what I guess might be an alter ego for mm. you. Initially, Emily was born uh, in 2013 in October. And I don't like to use the word alter ego because I really experience her like a character that's coming for this one project and this one mission. Mm -hmm. She's coming to talk about something for a period and really like bust open a channel um, for me. But of course on the stage, that's the, the main premise of the story. She's here to look at things with fresh eyes and experiment and encourage folks to erupt and discover what's been hidden under the surface. So I didn't know when she first came why Emily needed to be here. (laughs) I just, I saw this character and it was really intriguing to me. 
and I, I heard like this sound image of, of the musical style. It was really energetic. I knew there was gonna be movement in the performance. I was seeing this, the, these quote unquote songs. They weren't songs yet, but these sort of song subjects playing in my mind as little vignettes. And I thought, well, yeah, that's what, that's what I wanna do. That vision, quote unquote, came to me um, in the middle of a hiatus. So I wasn't doing anything as a band leader. I had left my management, my agent, my label. And I was just, I thought I was just chilling. I thought I was gonna just be a side person until, until further notice. Take a little girl who gets to see her mama broke down. Now she's a lady made for the modern world, my life. But if you ask my advisors, was your middle name, right? It is my middle name, It yeah. was Esperanza Emily Spoli. So how Correct. much uh, Esperanza's in Emily and how much Emily's in Esperanza? Well, the, that, what you just said of Emily being my middle name is the perfect allegory for what she is. Um, it's something that's in the middle that hasn't been used. Mm. So when I think of Emily's in the middle, I think like Emily is within, she's inside. It really feels like there was this creative force and creative curiosity that I wasn't exploring. I, I didn't know that, like I said, when Emily was born, but now I understand that Emily was like, hey, I need, <laughs> you need to play more. Like, you, there's other things that we need to do out here that you yeah. need to do, like move, act, dance. You, it's stop being so serious, you know? Stop trying so hard to like show that you know what you're doing. And I've understood now, I had a lot of hangups about needing to prove that I could really play. Mm. Because I, I felt like so many people saw me as just like a pretty lady that was lucky. And I felt, I think, all through my 20s, even before anybody knew who I was, that I had to show that I was a real musician and that I was here for this music and that I could play bass and that I wasn't just messing around. And I think part of Emily coming was like, F that. Right. Mm. You know you can play. If, if other people can't see that, that's their problem. You know why you do the music. That's not going to go away. Like... Do what you want to do. Play how you want to play. Like, I was hearing and imagining and thinking more than I was allowing myself space to explore. Yeah. And, and part of the urgency to me of, of doing this project with all its challenges and ups and downs is I think a lot of artists, a lot of humans struggle with that. You struggle with trying to break through other people's projections on you that you feel like first you have to prove wrong before you can do anything else. Like you have to earn the right to just go do your thing. And that is false. There are no perfect amends here. You get to just keep on getting there, getting there. There's no promise or test here.
a voracious music lover. I know Correct. you listen across genres and across eras. Um, are there other performers, uh, musicians, who have channeled characters that Ooh. you took inspiration from uh, for Emily? Like, you know, whether it's David Bowie and Oof. Peter Gabriel or T Tori Amos and Ooh. Lady Gaga. You know, I mean, I, I wonder, you know, how much of that was in your thinking in creating this character? Well, I became aware, I suppose, of character and um, theater and dramaturgy as like a resource for performance because in throughout 2013 and a little bit in 2012, um, I started to get into libretto writing. Mm. And so I started to look at music performance that involved character and storyline. Huh. And then I started to look into more theater work and I started realizing like, whoa, dramaturgy, like acting, huh. I wasn't looking for the resources to fuel Emily, but rather the idea of her being a character, I think, grew out of the osmosis of just checking out on YouTube all this theater stuff. Um, it, then there was a place to run and look when Emily came to the forefront as a character I was going to play. I'd never done anything like that before. But like, I, like what? What were you YouTubing? Well, I kind of tripped out when I discovered Samuel Beckett. I must laugh at these things, Nag. Why do you always laugh at them? Not so loud. Nothing is funnier than unhappiness, I grant you that. Oh, yes, yes, it's the most comical thing in the world. There's a poet, uh, an author slash poet called Ruth Krauss, and she had written a bunch of poem plays, which are these like, quote unquote, unstageable poem plays. They're really, they could be poems, but they're written to be staged. And I, I felt like the room that she leaves for the reader's imagination is so generous. And I really resonated with that mode of performance and it was really fun to read the director's interpretation of how they would stage it. It'd be something like um, 300 people walk into a station, 500 trees appear, the station exits, you know. Like <laughs> right, right, right. It's hard to stage, but um, it leaves a lot of room for uh, obviously directorial interpretation. And as the viewer or as the reader, you're, as I'm sure just happened in your brain, like it lands and your creative mind goes, whoa! Mm -hmm. And it's, I love it. That's intriguing to me. And there's a piece of that, what just happened in your, in your minds when I quoted that, which was an indirect quote just for the record, that I think improvisation does, like mm. jazz improvisation does. You hear something get set up and you don't know where it's going to go. And when you hear like the melodic poetic conclusion, it's like, huh, your brain does the counterpoint, the math, and you, you, you hear the full phrase. And I felt connected in, in theater. I felt the connection from dramaturgy, from what I've been doing in jazz. And honestly, I feel much more satisfied incorporating the improv of music and the improv of staging and acting than I was um, just being a bass player. And I didn't realize there was something missing. And once I realized that there was, I said, okay, well, here we go, guys. It's time yeah. to look like a fool for a couple of years and figure this out. Ochre, ivy, brick, and leather on books built up by heavy lock crooks with unburdened minds of bastardized Armenian logic projected as harsh evidence on backs and faces of our ancestral culprits wasted toiling as a majority on plantated crimes. We want to knock and climb brass strings of wisdoms and build our own hot breath kingdoms and make fuming passions rain down ash and hand out dirty white rules to wipe up and memorize and howl our own law hand me downs upon the class of masses and grin as each graduate passes on our synthesized words that sterilize natural all. I just want to ask a couple more things about the record because it's a fascinating record. It's Thank so you. dense. The songwriting, 
is a major leap for you, I think. Thank you. Um, and I'm thinking about that track, Ebony and Ivy. And at mm-hmm. first, I, I, I misread it as Ebony and Ivory. And I go, is she covering that <laughs> really <laughs> not so good idea. song? Yeah. But then I realized that's it's the book uh, by this historian, Craig uh, Stephen Wilder, <laughs> about how the slave trade uh, was actually some American universities were benefiting greatly from it. And you're diving deep into this very dense uh, piece of music as well as lyrics into this subject. And it seems like that's, to me, the big leap here in this record is that Mm. these lyrics are really, not that you weren't saying anything before, but you're Mm. really sending across some powerful messages in what you wanted Mm. to write here. Uh, why specifically yeah. that book and, and, and in that track? Why did you choose to include it in this, in this wow. record? Well, I had picked up this phenomenon of from myself, from my own personal experience and friends that I grew up with, where we, say me and people who have gone through this, feel like we have to have our intelligence verified by an academic institution. Like we don't, we don't trust our own experience mm-hmm. and our own experiential intelligence from living a life in this culture, in this world. And once you subject yourself, I would say, to like institutionalized intelligence verification, it's really hard to make it through without assuming the ideology of that institution. And remember, the institution... For instance, let's say one of these Ivy League schools whose founders and presidents were receiving money and funding from slaveholding families were producing material to justify the behavior, the slave trade that was funding their institution. (laughs) To a big degree, I think we still defer our sense of value to these institutions. And a lot of the ideology within is very classist. And woven into the system is a philosophy that says, yeah, if we can't prove that you're intelligent, you're really not. Mm-hmm. And I, I really don't think that's fair. So um, that song initially wasn't speaking to, you know, the history of slave trade being involved with Ivy League schools and their perpetuation. It really was about how disenfranchised people believe that they'll be justified and their value will be proven if they can just make it through the system and get that degree on their back to say, like, I'm somebody. Mm-hmm. And the question in that song is, so then what? Now what do you do with that? Right, right. Do we do we really know why we're pursuing that? Mm-hmm. That simple answer may just be, I just wanted somebody else to affirm that I'm good enough, you know? Right. Imagine imagine how many versions of brilliance are squashed <laughs> and squandered um, because that the institution teaches you that you're not worth anything unless you can prove it in that model. It's been hard to Last song. You cannot not love a record that ends with a Willy Wonka song. <laughs> Yay! Uh, Anthony Newley and Leslie Burkus. Such a great song. Flipping the script a little bit because sure. it's temp- it's a temper tantrum in the movie, and Veruca yes. Salt meets her demise. Yes. Uh, but here, this seems to be an expression of everything. It's a There's a reason it's the last yes. song on the record. Yes. Yeah. Well, 
Whew, that's just such an amazing song. It is. Oh my God. When I was um, writing this arrangement, I would check in with the original recording. The arrangement is crazy. Like when you're a kid, you don't notice it because you're just watching a movie. It's so creative and freaky. The original song, I love it. Well, that is a psychedelic rock album. <laughs> it's totally psychedelic rock. I want a party with roomfuls of laughter, 10,000 tons of ice cream. And if I don't get the things I am after, I'm going to scream. So, okay, why is that song the last song on the record? Um, mainly because <laughs> I identify with the message of that song. And I say, hell yeah, I want it now. Like, mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with wanting the world. That we're, we're kids, we're supposed to want the world. That's what they tell us we can have. The tricky thing in, in the end of that movie is that sh she's only, what, 11? And she's already a product of her environment. Mm -hmm. But somehow she gets all the blame. Like, that is so crappy and so typical. Like, we scapegoat the product. So she gets dumped down as like a bad egg. Mm -hmm. But she was trained to be like that. Because of course kids want the world. She's t 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. Like, how come she's the bad egg? Like, there's the basic sentiment of I want the world is good. Like, we, yes, you should feel that. It just, I think it got twisted. Like, unfortunately, it was it was focused on the wrong kind of <laughs> um, how to get that. She was she was Well, taught, it's the selfishness, right? I want to lock it all up in my pocket. That, that. So right? I, changed I it want to, the world, but I don't want you to have it. That's right. It. That's I changed problem. the lyric to I do want to share it. Yes. Because I do want it, and I do mm -hmm. want to lock it up in my pocket. That's fine. Some of it's for me, and some of it's for you. Mm -hmm. We live in a consumer culture. We're supposed to want it all. So then what? Like, what do you do when you have it all? Share it. Okay. Right, there you go. You got to share you half know, the Wonka bar. Yeah, you have a party, <laughs> uh, rooms full of laughter, a thousand tons of ice cream, nothing wrong with that. Just share it. I want the world. I want the After a short break, Esperanza Spaulding tells us about her experiences as a woman in a male-dominated field. And later we'll reflect on David Bowie's legacy a year after his death. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I want it now.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and our guest today is the multi-talented Esperanza Spaulding, singer, songwriter, band leader, and so much more. She first came to people's attention as a bass virtuoso. Music conservatories in the jazz world are notoriously competitive and male-dominated environments, so I asked her if the fight was continuing for women to be taken seriously as players. Um, I don't know. It's not a fight now. I actually assume responsibility for allowing myself to go down that rabbit hole, you know. Ultimately, we are not at the mercy of the yes or no of some men. I'm saying as musicians. I don't know what it was like 20 or 30 years ago, but now if you can play, you can play. As a woman, people are always going to project their stuff on you, whether you're good looking or not. People are going to project it on you. It's part of the culture right now. It's, I don't mean like, like the millennial culture. I mean, we're still working with that. We're still working through that as a species of like mm. figuring out how to reconcile our differences as men and women because they're there and it's okay. We just, we need to learn some new practices of interacting with each other beyond the mode of like, I like you or I don't, um, or I'm attracted to you or I'm not, or I'm intimidated by you or I'm not. It's, we've got to move past those paradigms and those dynamics. Uh, did you see the film Whiplash? No. That made, ah, interesting. Uh, you know, it reduced uh, musicianship to a contest, hmm. a, a sort of I'm going to prove I'm better than you constantly. Mm. And some of those places, I'm not saying all of Berkeley, but there is an element of that there. Sure. Let me show you how fast and how, you know, well sure. I can Sure. Yeah. And that, the good thing about that competitive spirit is you, you become better. I mean, mm. you need technical prowess to express yourself freely. You don't have to use all of it all the time, but it really helps to have technical facility. It's, mm. it's like... Um, um, some of my favorite dance companies that you don't see, you don't feel the ballet in it, but they'll be the first ones to tell you, like, we need dancers who are trained in ballet because we need them to be able to do anything. And that's the best groundwork if you're going to be a contemporary dancer at NDT or whatever, or Kid Pivot, another one of my favorite dance companies. And music is the same. Um, jazz music, whatever music, it's just having more vocabulary. Like you want to be a great writer and you discover that your vocabulary is limited. Like you feel the crunch. You're like, ooh, I, I want to have a place out here. I need to work on my vocabulary. So yeah, there's that competitive spirit and you can get lost in it. I'm not going to pretend like you can't and a lot of people do. But I think it's a good requisite. Like I, I think it's okay that you feel that, that pressure, that fire under your butt. I better. Well, I've, yeah. I've read you quotes where you've said you've played a show and you hadn't practiced in a day or two, and, and that bothers you. Of course, you want you, you're practicing all the time. You don't want to get up there and suck. I mean, that's just like basic stuff. I can say, back to the your original question of being a woman in this music, like almost everything as a professional woman that I want to get involved with is a boys club, still. Um, and that's just, that's the work that we have to do at this time in human history. And it's, I'm okay with it. The problem when I was younger is that I was really insecure and I took it really personal when somebody, even if I did a great job, I think folks could see that I was like looking for their affirmation that I was okay. And some people would seize it and be like, yeah, you know, you sound good for a girl. Oh. And I would let that work on me. I would yeah. like play along with their power trip. And now 
fortunately, I'm less susceptible to that. I feel like my way of breaking the stigma is just um, being hardcore, what that means to me, mm. not as it relates to masculinity or testosterone or competitiveness, but like being all that I know I have the capacity for and kicking my own butt and really showing what it is I'm here to do. And I figure people will figure out that it's not a gender thing and it's not a race thing and it's not a face thing if it stands on its own. But I wouldn't want my work to be propped up just because a woman did it. Right, know? right. Obviously, gotcha. obviously. Where is the throne for you whose tender strength can heal a thousand souls? Everyone you touch just Many have tried, but you're the one whose noble touch has gently pride. Of another, and you lay your burdens down. Don't even make a sound. Don't worry about a thing. I'm here to love you. You were talking about uh, the year long sort of, you took a year off. Mm. That's when Emily's D plus evolution began. That whole in period of insanity with some very good things, like yeah. going to play for the Obamas. Sure. Man. Uh, starts in 2011 when you robbed, you stole from that poor young Justin Bieber, <laughs> yeah. the best new artist Grammy. And everybody let you know it on the web. They <laughs> were so cool. That was um, fun. But you have this surreal moment of hyper media mm. frenzy. Mm. What does that do to you? And then what you know? What leads to you eventually saying, "I got to take a year off from this"? What I loved about those next two years is that these venues we were playing the same kind of venues that people like me would play. But I started to notice that the demographic was shifting. Like mm. there were there were different people coming in because they wanted to see like, what's this girl all about? And I was so grateful that the music we were playing was Chamber Music Society. I, I loved that project. That really meant the world to me. I worked so hard on it and the live performance was really magical and special. Once autumn's glow has gone away And gray cotton clouds blanket drowsy days I know And I just felt like, yes, you know, everything's coalescing. Like we put in all this blood, sweat, and tears of this project, and it's and it works, and people are coming, and it's people who wouldn't have come ordinarily. So the Grammy didn't cause any pain or strife. It, it just was awesome. It was like a great spotlight. What started to get crazy is me not knowing how to organize a team, you know, they don't teach you leadership skills at Berkeley or like business management skills. So I felt like a lot of just the day-to-day -day managing of a quote-unquote career was falling into my lap and it was too much for me. Mm. I didn't know how to do it. And I said, like, I'm not here to be like an email checker and a phone call haver. <laughs> yeah. I'm here to make stuff. I'm here to play. And that what that was the thing I was doing the least. I said, shut it down. <laughs> Pull the plug. Shut it down. Everybody has to go bye-bye. By manager, by agent, by everybody. Like Esperanza needs to figure out what what how to get back to doing her job. Um, so that was fall of 2013 through 2013, the beginning of 2014. 
Um, and then I got tricked into joining a band with Jack DeJanette, and I'm so glad that I did because that was amazing. Um, and in that like hiatus from being, you know, responsible for all these people, I just played. And in that space, like I said, Emily I played emerged. with some of the best drummers ever. Some of the best. Everybody, <laughs> oh I got to play God. with Tom Harrell. I did a bunch of gigs with Fred Hirsch. It was the richest year, and I was quote unquote doing nothing. It was the best. I was fascinated by Esperanza is your relationship with Wayne Shorter, who oh. seems to be like a, a mentor figure maybe, but certainly somebody who has appreciated what you do. Mm. And the way he defines jazz mm. is the way you seem to be utilizing it. Well, Wayne, we could just have a whole session talking about him. <laughs> he really is um, beyond genre, and I see him as the seminal genius of our time, you know. He's such a philosopher. Most of us have never read his writings. It's unpublished, but he's an amazing writer mm -hmm. beyond music. Illustrator, he's a painter. He writes for symphonies. He writes librettos. He wrote a piece for that Renee Fleming sang. He put music to uh, Maya Angelou's poetry. He's just this giant creative force. And I actually feel like, in some ways, culturally, he's stigmatized because of the tag jazz. Right because there's like an aesthetic or a historical connotation because of his age, the number. I think the, the culture, the musical culture hasn't caught up with him. They still place him in like the 60s and 70s and 50s and he has continued to expand since he was born. And I've been fortunate, so blessed and fortunate enough to get to work with him and spend a lot of time with him when I was working on libretto I mentioned. So that's really when he and I connected and I got to spend time with him and sh share with him what I'm working on. And he was a big champion for Emily's Deepless Evolution. When I, as I started to kind of like meekly whisper this idea that I had, he was like, go for it. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. bust it open. And um, he is the first person that I heard say, the definition of jazz is I dare you. Mm -hmm. And that means I dare you to yourself, mm. too. As well as like, I dare you, anybody who's here like sharing this experience with me, of the live performance. So to be clear, at some point we're going to have an opera with uh, music written by Wayne Shorter and you've written the book. Correct. That's coming down the pike. So we are, we did one piece um, two years ago that he wrote called Gaia. It's only, uh, it's only, it's, a tw it's about 23 minutes long and it's not like narrative. It's, it's, um, I wrote the libretto just in like kind of first person speaking on a theme about Gaia and my mission there was to incorporate all the imagery and ideas that Wayne wanted the the, <laughs> the lyric to communicate. As I was working with him, I discovered that since he was 19 years old, he's wanted to write this opera that incorporates dance. It has acting, it has 
um, symphonic music. This was going to have improvisation as well, and there's dance and there's staging. And I realized, like, oh my God, wh where is the institutional support for this guy? Mm -hmm. Like, so I made it my agenda, my mission to mm -hmm. make sure that this opera was going to come to life. What drew you to the bass? You are most identified with playing that instrument, even though you can play others, but that seems to be your yeah. your choice of your voice. Hmm. I wasn't looking for the bass. I was a violinist, and I just used piano. I still use piano just as a compositional tool. You know, I wasn't serious enough to ever really practice it. We didn't have any music program at our high school if you even can call it a high school. Mm. It was, it was mm. an arts school. Um, and for some reason, the school bought an acoustic bass. I don't know why. I don't know why they bought that instrument. We did not have a music program. But anyway, they did. Maybe they were trying to to cultivate one. Anyway, Maybe somebody just donated it I don't for know. the they tax write-off. I know they bought it. Because <laughs> yeah. they bought it from... I. They made me... I bought it from Cash them later. Money, wow. Cash money. I, I worked all summer and I bought that crappy bass from them and I still own it. But anyway, this bass appeared in the room and I went in there with our music, our engineer scoring teacher slash, he was like a music teacher in the school. And I pick up this instrument. He comes in and he says, oh, you want to play bass? And I didn't, but I just was messing around and I like to play music. So... He comes in and he sits down at the keyboard and he's like, okay, so here, let me teach you a blues progression. He's like, you, you go to one, then you go to four, and blah, 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 and he shows me, he's like, and basically you just play the root on beat one and then play scale tones in between so you can outline the harmonic sound. And I'm going like, okay. So we just start playing and it, it was like the best feeling. I had never explored improvisation or jazz or bass, but I just, I got it. It felt very instinctual. And I honestly just was obsessed with the tone. You know, yeah. I'm coming from violin. That's a lot of screechy up in your ear as you're practicing. Yeah. And I took the, the bass bow and just bowed the low open E and felt that frequency resonating through my skeleton because, you know, it rests on your pelvic bone, so you, like, everything vibrates. And I just, I was, like, completely hypnotized by that sound and by that, now I have the word function but I just, I knew that was the thing. I just knew. I know how to do this. For my uh, energy field, for my brain, the bass is like the opposite of what I'm like. <laughs> it's, the, it's the diametric opposite of like how I am. And I think I need it. I need it like to be okay. It's like my daily medicine grounding thing. I'm dying to, because you, you described that bass progression so eloquently oh. and clearly it's still in your head from the moment you picked up that instrument and how it felt and we don't have an upright but you have the electric can you can you just play i mean just to illustrate to the listeners the you know what a blues progression sounds like on a, oh. on a bass because people don't know, you know? what one for so. what, what was it that resonated with you on those, those sequence of notes you know that um, you played basically in the, these are not like there's bebop blues progressions there's all kinds of variations on the blues but the first basic thing that I was shown was you start with this chord. You hear that? Mm -hmm. And then it goes to this chord. 
goes back to the first chord. And I'll play the whole thing in a second. So I'm playing all those notes in between the root this so you can hear the tonality of each chord. And then you go to four again. And then back to one. That's the really basic one. Then it goes to this chord. Back to this chord. And then back to the original chord. So that's the super, 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 super basic one. Mm -hmm. And I'll just play through that a little bit with a couple of variations. So. stuff so, so nerdy nobody nobody wants to just hear so no but it's blues. you know it's idea. it's instructive because you know finding a voice on an instrument that's not you know a lot of people just say oh it you know you play the root chord on the bass and it's just kind of a rhythm instrument but clearly you're expressing a lot on that instrument uh, and you're you're filling a lot of space in your songs with not just rhythm, but melody, uh -huh. and sort of bridging, the, bridging those worlds. Huh. Jazz instrumentalists in particular talk about this idea of finding your voice on an instrument. And when did you feel like you've, you found your voice on, on the bass guitar? Yeah, how did we get from what, what that instructor started you at to what you were just doing at the end? Well, the whole thing about finding your voice, I, I would never say that to a student. Mm -hmm. I would never say, you got to find your voice because you can't help but your voice is there from day one to day end. <laughs> mm -hmm. My voice is a combination of the sound, my, you know, the vocal box that I was born with, my nasal cavity and all that good stuff. It's a combination of all the things, like influences from people I've grown up with, people that I admire, probably people that I don't even admire, my family, my friends, hanging out with who I've been hanging out this week. The books I've read, Portland, Portland, Berkeley. Berkeley. I'm talking about my just my speaking voice. Like it's inevitable. No matter how, even if I try to hide it, if you hear a recording of me, you're gonna know it's me because I've been talking my whole life, and it's ultimately like it's settled into a sound that's my sound. Mm -hmm. The same thing happens with instruments, with your instrumental voice. It's inevitable, even if you just get like close to practicing and playing. As much as you as you speak, your voice is going to come through. It's inevitable. It'll be influenced by the gigs you take. It'll be influenced by the records you transcribe. It'll be influenced by whether or not you're like into proving your you know uh, excellence by beating everybody and having the most chops. It's going to come. It's going to come, and you can't hide in it. Um, and also, one of the nice things about um, spending a lot of time 
practicing your instrument is you'll have access to sounds that you've just heard but never mm. actually studied. Because mm -hmm. it's, like, it's like an accent. It's like a turn of phrase. It's like the first time you hear yourself saying what your friend always says. Mm. You know, I have a dear, dear friend in the band that always says, we're out here, we out here. I would never say that, but now all of a sudden I find myself like that <laughs> phrase flying out of my mouth and the same thing happens with music. Um, once you have access to your mouth getting around the vocabulary, things will just come out. Hold your head as high as you can, high enough to see who you are, little man. Life sometimes is cold and cruel, maybe no one else will tell you, so remember that you are black gold, black gold. You are black gold. We've been talking to Esperanza Spaulding here on Sound Opinions. What a complete treat. Thank you. Ooh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Now we want to hear from you. What's your opinion on Esperanza Spaulding, the bass, or anything else in the music world? Leave us a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. And connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. After a short break, we're going to consider the life and music of David Bowie one year after his death. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is the title track from what proved to be the final studio album from David Bowie, Black Star. Jim, here it is a year later, almost to the day when David Bowie died, and he is back in the news again. He is dominating uh, top 10 year-end lists, NPR Music, Rolling Stone, Pitchfork, Stereo Gum, uh, my list. Notable omission in that list. Uh, you were not a huge fan of this record. I'm not a big Black Star fan, no. I gave it a try it on our buy it, try it, a trash it scale. But uh, Bowie, who died on January 10th of 2016, uh, is getting all this additional attention because I think uh, the general recognition of Bowie as an innovator, which I believe he was, uh, is proven out with this record. It is a, uh, a record where he broke ground yet again uh, in the fifth decade of his career. You know, we looked back at Bowie's legacy earlier this year and wanted to play a bit of that now on the anniversary of his death. Specifically, 
we wanted to talk about one of Bowie's most famous songs, Space Oddity. And we start talking with uh, Tony Visconti, his longtime producer. Yeah, Tony Visconti's also worked with Esperanza Spaulding. Uh, we'll start this excerpt from our hour-long special about Bowie, talking to Visconti about producing the album, Space Oddity. He didn't know what he wanted to do. And my job was to channel him like we have to pick a genre david okay what are we going to do you know what are we going to do on your first album so david started writing these songs on the 12 string guitar and he wrote them pretty quickly and these are all the songs that are on the first album i produced with him the space oddity album yeah so we got him going in a direction it wasn't the best direction i mean a lot of bowie fans love that album but i i cringe when i hear it it wasn't still wasn't right really i mean the space oddity is considered uh you know one of those perfect songs, you know? Well, I have to tell the Space Oddity story then. Mm-hmm. I didn't produce it. Yeah. Right. Was the I didn't right. like it. You didn't do. Um, I didn't like it. <laughs> and how did so, you miss that boat? I recorded most of the album. I rehearsed the album with the group. And at the 11th hour, he, and this is what he'll always do, and this is what he's traditionally done now since I've met him, he writes one of his best songs at the end of the album. Because the pressure, he needs to be hyped up. He needs to be pressurized to, to create, unlike other artists who like to go away to the countryside and write. He brings a song to me, and it's not folk rock. It's like nothing we've uh, started to record or rehearsed. And uh, also, I listened to it closely, and I said, David, you're, you're stealing things. I said, the, the, <laughs> here am I sitting in a tin can. That's right off the Bookends album by Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> he was the, the ground control to Major Tom. Is He's putting on a, a John Lennon voice there, and there are like a few Beatles alliterate, alliterations there. So I said, David, this is one big cheap shot. And that's the exact, <laughs> exact expression. And he looked at me very painfully, and he says, I know, he says, but the record company likes it. I was full of principles in those days. I was uh, still hippie-ish, and I said, I can't do this. And uh, he, he said, okay, um, what should I do? I go, well, Gus Dudgeon, who was my friend and an engineer that we used, he, his office was two doors away from mine. I said, Gus would probably do a great job on this. And when I heard it, I regretted it instantly. I thought he did a marvelous job, and I thought the song was great. Mm-hmm. The next time I saw David, I said, this is really great, and and congratulations, and I think you and Gus should finish the album together. He goes, no, I got that over with. Let's you and I finish the album. That's Tony Visconti talking about working with David Bowie on Sound Opinions in 2008. Uh, as he said, he did not produce the song Space Oddity, but he worked on the album with Bowie. We've got to talk about that song, though, Greg, because it's the place that any discussion of Bowie has to start. Released in July 1969, the same month that human beings first walked on the moon with Apollo 11. What is great about this song? My friend Glenn Kenny, who's a film critic for VanityFair.com, wrote a wonderful piece about Bowie the actor. And he said there is no difference between Bowie the actor and Bowie the musician. And what I love about this, it's a one song, catchy single, entire rock opera in the sense of playing different roles. Ground control, talking to Major Tom. Major Tom's circuit's dead. He's lost, right? He doesn't know where he's going. This is a heck of a thing to say when we don't yet know that the the three men who we sent up into space are coming back, right? We didn't know what was going to happen when they landed on the moon. You've already used the word innovator, and I don't think that's Bowie's strength. We've tussled about this at various episodes of Sound Opinions. I think he's a synthesist. I think he heard things that were going on in the underground. He was particularly influenced by Pink Floyd and tracks like Interstellar Overdrive. He covered Sid Barrett famously. He knew about Hawkwind and their space 
operas. I think he was taking the space sci-fi art rock thing and putting it into the mode that he knew best. Remember, he'd been a struggling folky somewhere between Dylan and Donovan at the start of his career. Smiling girls and rosy boys, come and buy my little toys. Monkeys made of gingerbread and sugar horses painted red. Did not make a mark in the 60s, really. It was only at the tail end of the decade, 1969's halfway over, when he really comes on the map and then he would epitomize the 70s. I think the roots of so much of what Bowie would do throughout his career can be found in this one song. So uh, the place to start any discussion of David Bowie has got to be Space Oddity. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Ground control to Major Tom Ground control to Major Tom Take your protein pills and put your helmet on Ground control to Major Tom Commencing countdown engines on Check ignition and may God's love be with you. Space Oddity, one of the most famous songs of his career. And uh, Jim, you and I addressed his entire career in a full episode of Sound Opinions, which you can hear at soundopinions.org. Blackstar, that is the record of the moment, though, Jim. Uh, a year after its release is being hailed as one of the best of the year. Now, Jim, at the time when we reviewed this record, we, had, we debated about the merits of it. And, you know, I was of the opinion that we really weren't going to get a sense of its actual worth until we removed it from the context of his death, which caused a lot of people to, you know, want to love the record because right. they love Bowie so much. Well, I think that's still happening, Greg. I, I don't think it's one of the 10 best albums of the year. I gave it a try it when it came out. Uh, if anything, I think it's 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 sunk in my estimation. I, I, I don't like Bowie tinkering with the jazz stuff. I 
I made the comparison when the album uh, was reviewed on this show to Double Fantasy. I think it's impossible to divorce John Lennon's last recording from the fact that he was assassinated. I think it's impossible to divorce Black Star coming on the heels of, of Bowie's death. Um, you know, there's so much love for Bowie. I think that's what we're seeing reflected here. I just don't think it was that strong an album. See, I think the comparison there is is false because I think w- when we look at Double Fantasy now, we see it as a very conservative album by an artist who was very much out of touch when he made it. He was making a John Lennon record. It's a nice record, but it clearly wasn't an innovative record. Whereas I think Bowie was an artist very much in touch with what was going on around him and, in fact, innovating in a way uh, that stamps him as one of the great artists of our, our, our time. I put this record in the same category as Low or Station to Station no. in terms of the way it innovated. There's well, no Eno. Oh, yeah, we're right. Well, there you go. And, you know, the, the point being that he was able to work with different collaborators throughout his career and do some really great things with them. I mean, the fact that he was working in the jazz realm, he really hadn't been there before. And, and to take this music, this pop overlay, and 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 combine it with these jazz voicings and these jazz textures, I mean, I'm hearing some musical textures on this record that I'd never heard from Bowie before. So I give him high points for not only innovating, but for making a record that for me, a year later after listening to it, removed from the context of his death still really holds up. Yeah, well, you made that point when we reviewed it. It would take a year to sink in. Me, I'll still go to Low, Lodgers, the Heroes, and uh, and Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. But as always, we want to hear from our listeners. Did Black Star make your list of the best albums of 2016? Leave us a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Greg, what's on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have songs that say, I'm sorry, in so many words. So many people (laughs) wait for us to say that every week. Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Esperanza Spalding was recorded by Adam Yaffe, and Sound Opinions producers are Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey folks, how's it going? This is Julian from uh, San Francisco, California. Just listened to the year-end mixtape, awesome as usual. But one thing I noticed that wasn't on the list is Anony's Hopelessness. If that wasn't an apropos album for the year, I don't know what was. So don't bump me. Don't bump me. Blow me from the mountains into the sea. Blow me from the side of the mountains. Blow my head off. Explode my crystal sort of tension between beautiful songs and but also you know uh, so much anxiety and sort of stress throughout the album i thought it was the album of the year in my opinion and certainly a track should have been on that mixtape um but thank you all for what you do and thanks for another great year looking forward to 2017 hopefully better music less drama all right peace hi guys this is tom from las vegas Thanks for remaining my main source of hope and inspiration. After living through a presidential assassination, the Cuban Missile Crisis, virtually endless foreign wars, race riots, political assassinations, 
domestic and foreign terrorist attacks and remaining the eternal optimist, 2016 changed that. For me, the only song that sums it up, You Want It Darker by Leonard Cohen. And somehow, fittingly, his light went out. Magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name. Vilified, crucified in the human frame. A million candles burning for the help that never came. You want it darker. I'm ready, my lord. And again, thanks for being my source of continued hope and inspiration. Hey, this is Ken in McHenry, Illinois. The song this year that did it for me, it's an old song, new performance, Patti Smith at the Nobel Prize ceremony, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. And I'll stand in the ocean until I start sinking And I'll know myself well if I start singing It's a hard it's a heart, it's a heart, it's a heart, it's a heart rings, a gun of fire. Amazing performance. That's it. Bye bye. Thank you. Hi, I'm calling about a musician we lost, sadly, uh, Christmas morning, uh, 2016. Uh, Willie Royal, who um, was well-beloved uh, around the world, actually, and uh, he played for a good while as part of uh, Willie and Lobo. Willie was a jazz violinist, and Lobo played the um, flamenco guitar. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Thank you.